Well, before I begin, I'd like to just uh, say how thankful I am to have the opportunity and the privilege to be here. Um, it's always uh, <clears throat> an opportunity to receive a great blessing when we come together to worship the Lord, to seek His counsel. I only hope and pray that um, each of us will earnestly seek the Lord at this time because I don't think in, I really should have to elaborate in too much detail uh, what is really taking place not only in this country but around the world. I think if you're just half awake to what God has said in the Holy Bible and the spirit of prophecy, you will come to see that we are at the end of time. And um, <clears throat> so it should place upon us a sense of urgency where we should begin earnestly re to rearrange our lives and set our priorities. Now, um, I'm going to be sharing with you some very important statements from the pen of inspiration. And I uh, want to make something very clear before I begin. I want to be able to clarify my position on the spirit of prophecy. Now the reason I say that is because I think it's of, of the utmost necessity that you know where I stand on that issue. And the reason I say that is because I'm the one going to be speaking to you. You're not going to speak to me. So you need to know where I stand. I believe that we as a people have a God-given right to know where the speakers stand on certain issues and that we ought not to be apologetic when we ask them what's your position on X, Y, and Z now I've always believed that if after you receive an answer you can't quite figure out what has just been said sometimes, not all the time but sometimes it leads you to the conclusion that you didn't get a straight answer the gospel is not complicated. The spirit of prophecy is not complicated. We've made it complicated. Truth is simple, clear, precise, to the point. Anything that is given to you that causes your mind to confu be confused and to question what has just been said, you know full well you didn't get the truth. Sometimes we like to pontificate. You know, we want to be able to at least show you we've got a college education and at least our diploma didn't go to waste. But I want to do my very best to stay away from pontificating. I want to be able to just simply share to you what God has shared with me. Now before we begin, though I know we've already had prayer, I'm going to ask you to pray with me now. But here, here's what, something I want you to do. You know, I know and I'm sure you're aware of the fact that the Bible says we ought not to covet our neighbor's goods. And we understand the concept of that. Of course, that's obviously the fundamental principle is dealing with selfishness, greed. <clears throat> but the Bible does say we should covet spiritual things. So there is an element of a desire, a thirsting, a hungering after something that doesn't belong to you that's good. And that 
of course, is coveting, as I said, spiritual things, being filled with the Holy Ghost, coveting to have the mind of Christ, or coveting the, to, to be kind and, and thoughtful and considerate, and, you know, the character of the Lord Jesus. We should covet these things. We should, th you know, do all that we can to uh, strive to reach those expectations. You know, if you don't ask, you don't receive. So we need to ask God to bless us. But all I want you to remember to pray for yourselves and pray for one another. And as we do that throughout this weekend, and we anticipate the blessings of God, God will give us precisely what we anticipate if we place ourselves in a position where He can bless us. So... Let us pray. Father in heaven, once again, we thank you for the privilege we have to come together to worship you. And Lord, we pray that you will guide us, that our minds, dear Lord, will be opened and understand the truth, to embrace what we hear, and Lord, to follow and to obey. Now, please, dear God, give us, we pray, the outpouring of thy Holy Spirit. Help each one of us to recognize our true condition not to see ourselves as we want ourselves to be, but rather to see ourselves as you see us. And help us, dear God, I pray, that this weekend will not be just another 72 hours that has been spent in vain. Let it be productive for the kingdom of heaven. Now, Lord, please, once again, through the name of Jesus, through his atoning work, forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us in that precious blood. And I pray you'll be with me. Help me to speak the words that is essential for eternal life. Help us all, dear God, we pray. May your angels watch over us and keep us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the theme of our weekend together is on the preparing for the latter rain. When Norman called me, he uh, shared uh, that with me, and I was very much pleased by that um, theme. He also added that um, you may preach whatever the Lord leads you to preach. And I always enjoy when people tell me that because I must be honest, I don't really like being told what to preach. <clears throat> I must also be honest with you, even if you did, I don't really think I'd do what you would tell me to do. I believe that you should do exactly what God tells you to do. You know, you may anticipate one thing, but sometimes we anticipate something that God is not wanting you to anticipate at all. Blessings sometimes come in very strange and odd ways. But... Um, whether they come in strange ways or whether they come in the way we anticipate, let them come. Now I'm going to read to you some statements from the spirit of prophecy on the latter rain. And as I mentioned to you, I want to be able to clarify to you the, my position on the servant of the Lord, at least in terms of the concept of the spirit of prophecy. Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, we are greatly privileged in many, many ways. And um, 
in one particular way is the gift of the spirit of prophecy. Now today we have come to a position in our beloved church where there are those who um, um, are very cynical, uh, very skeptical uh, in regard to the spirit of prophecy. Uh, they have relegated uh, her writings to, you know, good counsel. Some even go as far as say, well, it's just good advice. Some have said, well, <clears throat> you know, if she were alive today, she would, um, she would have uh, written the great controversy differently. She would have been, you know, she, she wasn't able to see what we see today. And often uh, when I sometimes hear those kind of comments, I wonder, well, <laughs> well, well, of course she's not alive in our day. But that doesn't preclude her from speaking about our day. I mean, to simply to say that because she didn't live in our day, therefore it excludes her from terms of the relevancy of the writings for our day, well, then you're going to have to exclude the Bible. I got news for you. Peter isn't living in our day. <laughs> if all that the spirit of prophecy is is simply good advice, uh, good counsel, nice you know, opinions, then that's not divine inspiration. Believe it or not, once in a while, I can give you good advice. may not be as often as I like, but once in a while, I can give you good advice. But that doesn't make me the son of a prophet. doesn't make me a prophet. The Holy Spirit... Clearly, is the author of all gifts. Now, we know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, and Ephesians chapter 4. These three chapters constitute the spiritual gift chapters. Now, there is no one chapter in the Bible that deals with all the spiritual gifts. They're broken up in those three chapters. You put them together and you've got pretty much every spiritual gift lined out. Now, what's interesting in that, if you turn with me quickly in your Bibles. Now, you did bring your Bibles. Right, I mean, you didn't come here to hear me, I hope. Because <clears throat> if you did, you're going to be disappointed. <clears throat> you came, I hope and pray, to hear the words of life. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I want to show you something about spiritual gifts. Now, as I mentioned to you, they're in those three chapters. And, and there are various gifts lined out administration, hospitality, pastors and teachers and, and, uh, and prophets and, and, uh, and, and, and various gifts of healing and speaking in tongues and so forth and so forth. These are all gifts of the Spirit. And, and there are others as well as I mentioned. But now, I want to show you something. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, this is what Paul says. But all these worketh, all these gifts operate or function Okay, they work it, they operate, they function. That one and self-same spirit, stop right there. According to what Paul says, all the gifts, not some, not most, 
all of them, and there are no exceptions, operate and function through what uh, what agency? Holy Spirit. All gifts operate, function through the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. That means every gift originates from the Holy Spirit. Every gift originates from Him. Now, there's a parable known as the parable of the talents. You know how one man, he got one, the other got two, the other got three, you know, and, and, or five, and then you know how one man, he buried his talent, didn't he? What did the other two fellows do? They, that's right. They used their talents, right? And what did God do in return? That's right. He multiplied their talents, didn't he? He sure did. Now, this teaches us something very important. According to the Scripture, if you continue to read on, it says dividing. The Holy Spirit divides or distributes to every man severally as he wills. The Holy Spirit determines who gets what gifts and how many gifts. You know, it's not like a a smorgasbord where you walk down the line and you take a little bit of the corn and you take some green beans and you take some peas and you think, well, I really don't want any carrots. That's not the way it is. According to the Scripture, you don't determine what gift you get. The Holy Spirit determines what gift you get and how many you will get. Now, if you put that together with the parable, it also teaches us that no matter how many gifts we receive, if we're faithful to God in the exercising of the gifts that we do receive, God will multiply those gifts. In other words, you may start out with one, but you may end up before it's all over with 20. You don't know. It depends what you're doing with the gifts that you got. You know, look, it's called stewardship. If someone is unfaithful with a little, are you going to give them more? Wouldn't that be unwise? Of course it would be. Now, what is this teaching us? In regard to the spirit of prophecy, that means the spirit of prophecy being a gift, a spiritual gift, just as evangelism or teaching administration or hospitality. That means that gift originated through the function and operation of the Holy Spirit, not Ellen White. Now think about this. I believe that God's given me the gift of evangelism. Now that doesn't mean because I have that gift, that doesn't mean I am the gift, does it? No, it doesn't mean I am the... It means what? I'm simply a recipient of the gift through the operation of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that right? So that anything that comes as a result of that gift, in other words, any of the blessings of the souls that are converted through the operation of the function of the, of the gift of evangelism, is, is through who? Me or the Holy Spirit? It's through the Holy Spirit. That's why we should always give God the glory. So the spirit of prophecy then, since it's the same as all other gifts in regard to the function and operation, 
of the Holy Spirit. That means the spirit of prophecy and the results in terms of the writings of the spirit of prophecy. Who's the real writer then? It's the Holy Spirit. It's not Ellen White. If you think that she is the writer, meaning the author, the actual author, whereby she originated out of her own mind, outside of the function and the operation of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of prophecy, then the spirit of prophecy is nothing more than a relegated gift to, the, to simply humanity. In other words, it's a human gift. It is not of a divine origin. But according to the Holy Scripture, we know it to be otherwise. We know it has to be relegated to the function and the operation of the Holy Spirit, which means, therefore, the gift of the Spirit of prophecy operates through the Spirit, and He is the true author of the gift. Now, don't misunderstand me. If Ellen White wrote to James White, you know, please pick up a loaf of bread on your way home from the grocery store. That's not a divine revelation. You know, she doesn't need the Holy Spirit to tell her that. Do you understand? If you, I don't have time, but you go into Ephesians chapter 4, it'll explain very clearly why God gave the gifts. Now listen. So how do we then understand, according to this the writings of the spirit of prophecy. When it comes to defining truth, when the spirit of prophecy defines truth, what kind of truth are we talking about? Is it just good advice? Is it good opinion? Huh? Good counsel? Is that, is that what it is? Or is it more than that? See, if the Holy Spirit can do nothing more than give you good advice, good counsel... How did he ever become the third member of the Godhead if that's all he can do? The Holy Spirit's got to be able to do more than that. Believe me. Now Peter said, Holy men of God spake as they were moved by what? Uh, he's talking about the nature of inspiration. How a man or a woman is inspired of God. Isn't that right? Isn't that what he's dealing with? Isn't that right? Yes, that's precisely what he's talking about. The concept of inspiration. Now the Bible teaches, and the spirit of prophecy confirms, there is no such thing as lesser degrees of inspiration. Sometimes we relegate the little prophets, the, what we call the minor prophets, you know, as though somehow they were minor in their inspiration that they received. That's why they only got six chapters, or maybe four or three. And the other prophets, you know, they got more because they were more inspired. No. That's not true. Habakkuk, you know, and Hosea, and all these other little prophets, Amos, and all the, they're just as inspired as Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Daniel. They're just as inspired. And since the Holy Spirit doesn't change, the same way in which he uh, operated through the nature of inspiration through the prophets of the Old Testament, he did the same through the New Testament, he does the same in the last days. So when Sister White, in the Great Controversy, says that the seventh-day Sabbath is the seal of God, how do we understand that? 
We can only understand it based on the evidence given us in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy that it is a divine, inspired, infallible commentary on truth. It is a declaration from the Holy Ghost to Sister White, to you. That's not an opinion. It is a divine, infallible truth. Now, why do I use the word infallible? It's a pretty strong word, isn't it? Why do I use the word infallible? Well, I'm predicated on who's the author. Who's the author? The Holy Spirit. Now, is the Holy Spirit infallible? He better be, because if he's not, this Bible's not. When the servant of the Lord in the great controversy, and in other places, and in other places, when the servant of the Lord said that Sunday is the mark of the beast, that's not an opinion. It's not relegated, it's not relegated to a position where, well, that sounds good, but. No, it's not a matter of sounding good. It's a divine revelation of truth, an infallible declaration by the Holy Ghost to servant of the Lord, to you. God is speaking to you through His agency. When the servant of the Lord in the great controversy and other places speaks of the fact that the first beast of Revelation 13 is the papacy and it is the Antichrist, not a Antichrist, but is the Antichrist, and the second beast of Revelation 13 is the United States of America? That's not an opinion. It's an infallible truth. When the servant Lord declares in her writings that when you die, you're in a state like that of sleep, that you don't go to heaven or hell, that you're waiting either for the resurrection of life or the resurrection of damnation. That's an infallible truth. And we can go down the line. Now, here's what happens today. Among too many, which is so sad, because they do not understand the nature of inspiration, and because I believe they've never really sat down from the Bible and hammered out from the Scriptures alone the biblical position of the nature of inspiration in regard to the spirit of prophecy, they don't understand the spirit of prophecy. And because they don't understand it, when they come to certain statements in the spirit of prophecy, and that statement conflicts with their lifestyle, instead of them repenting and confessing and forsaking their sin and conforming their lives to the harmony of God's will, they rebel against the statement. And so what do they do? They relegate her to the past. If she lived in our day, she would, she would have known better. As though somehow now we are wiser. Please, we can put all, and I'm sure all these young bright minds we've got, we can put them all together all, and make one brain. And the Holy Spirit would still run circles around you. You see, little do we realize, when we begin to hurl the stones of criticism against the servant of the Lord, you're not criticizing her. 
I mean, really. <laughs> Do you ever walk into a cemetery and start arguing with the person buried in the ground? Do you? I mean, people would actually think you've lost something. Yet we do it from a distance. We may not hover over her grave, but we hurl accusations from a distance to the dead. You know, the Bible says you shouldn't speak to the dead. I think it's called necromancy. Don't you understand that when you boil this down to the lowest common denominator, that you're not fighting against Sister White? She's not the author. That really, you have a problem with the Holy Spirit. You see, the Bible says it's, Jesus said, you can sin against me, I'll forgive you. He said, but if you sin against the Holy Spirit, I'll not be forgiven you in this world and neither in the world to come. Now, the unpardonable sin is relegated to two positions. You can do it two ways. One is you can do it by habitually, per, you know, persistently refusing to conform your life to the will of God after He leads you. You understand? You know, in other words, hardening your heart. You come to the point where you just sear your conscience, as Paul says there in 1 Timothy 4. You can actually sear your conscience. All right? That's one way. There's another way you can commit the unpardonable sin. When you call the work of God the work of the devil... And that's what some have done in our church to the spirit of prophecy. So the next time you start criticizing the statements of the spirit of prophecy, if you should even venture to have the nerve to go that far, tread softly. And don't tread anymore. All right. So now that we've got that out of the way, now I'm going to read to you some statements from the Spirit of Prophecy. <laughs> Testimony to Ministers, page 508. I want you to listen to what the servant Lord has to say. The convocations of the church, as in camp meetings, the assemblies of the home church, and all occasions where there is personal labor for souls, are God's appointed opportunities for the giving of the early and the latter rain. That means meetings such as this. That God has actually appointed places or at least occasions, times, when He's actually said, on these certain occasions, I've appointed for the giving of the early and the latter rain. So we should expect then the giving of the early and the latter rain. Now. We're here together now. He said, look, I always, you know, sometimes when I get into a rather strange predicament in my life and I always throw the scriptures back at God. I said, God, you said it, not me. You said, I, you know, I could live without sinning. I didn't write that, Lord. You said that. You said, without me, you can do nothing. 
You also said, Lord, with you I can do all things. Lord, you said, with God, you know, God is in the business of doing the impossibility. So sometimes I, it's not so much that I need to remind him, I think it's what it is, I need to remind myself about those things. Great Controversy, page 611. The great work of the gospel is not to close with less manifestation of the power of God than marked its opening. Praise the Lord. I mean, can you imagine? You know, sometimes when you're running a race, it's true. You do weaken as you, you know, go on in that race. And the further you go, the obviously the more tired you become. Yes, you don't have the same strength as you had in the beginning. But not so in the preaching of the gospel, in the giving of the early and the latter rain. That instead of it weakening as it nears the end, it gets stronger. And it will reach, obviously, the pinnacle of the height of the glory in Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 to 5, when the entire earth will be lightened with the glory of the latter rain. Servant Lord says, The prophecies which were fulfilled in the outpouring of the former rain at the opening of the gospel are again to be fulfilled in the latter rain and its close. So that means when you're looking at Joel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2 and 3 and other prophecies relative you know, to, to the issue of the early and latter rain, or particularly the latter rain, you've got to look at, it's going to be what? Repeated again. So look at those prophecies. Don't remember. Don't look at them as though they were in the past, as though somehow now they're finished. No, no, no. They're going to be repeated again. Here are the times of refreshing of which the apostle Peter looked forward when he said, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord and he shall send Jesus. The work will be similar to that of the day of Pentecost. So we now know according to what she has said and clearly Acts chapter 2 and 3, she made a direct reference to Acts chapter 3 verse 19 talking about the time when Peter made that beautiful declaration. It will be similar. A similarity between the two events. A paralleling of these two events, a harmonizing. When you parallel, you begin to see the same characteristics that applied in the days of and the early rain will apply in the latter rain. And you know as well as I do, we'll look at this a little bit later on, but I'm going to just talk about it briefly. Listen, you know as well as I do that the latter rain did not come, or excuse me, the early rain did not fall upon the disciples until they put away their differences, until they came together in harmony with one another. Yes, they humbled themselves and looked one another in the eye and said, you know what, I apologize for what I've done to you, I'm sorry. You know what, sometimes you've got to understand. Look, friends, pride is a deadly thing. But if we expect the hand of God to be moved in a mighty way on our lives individually, then we're going to have to humble ourselves, not only before the Lord, but before one another. No, it's not easy. It never is when you have to say, I'm sorry. But it's not going to do you any good if you continue in your life. You can sing all the songs you want. You can pay all the tithes and offerings you want. You can go and do all the missionary work you want. You can do everything you want. But unless you repent of your sins, you're not going to heaven. Amen. 
Lord, Lord, have we not done many wonderful things in thine name? And you look at the list there in, in John, uh, Matthew 7. You look at that list. Do you know there's not one thing you can condemn that they offer to Jesus as evidence of their faith in him? Did you know? Not one. There's not one thing on the list you can sit there and say, oh, there's the reason why you're not in heaven. Everything they actually said to Jesus, first of all, was true. You know that, don't you? You know, they weren't lying. They actually did those things. So everything they said was true. Everything they said, uh, they told him uh, in regard to that list was um, was um, a virtue. It was an honor. It was, a, you know, in terms of a, a beautiful thing that they did. And, and not one of it was a lie. And yet Jesus said, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And here's the reason why. He, I never knew you. And you know that word new and the Greek intimacy of a close relationship like a husband with a wife. You know, there's that bond of a, a very serious, close union. In the Old Testament, what did they say? Rend your hearts and not your... What's the, diff, what's the, what's the point? God said to the Jews many a time, so what you offer me 10,000 rams? What does that mean to me? It's a stench to my nostrils. You know why it stunk in the nostrils of God? Do you know why? First of all, was it the will of God that they should offer the rams? Yeah, it was the will of God. So were they, in this particular aspect, disobeying God? No, they were doing the will of God. So why would doing the will of God in this one particular aspect be stench in the nostrils of God? you know why? Yeah, because it was done in vain. They were hypocritical. So what if you sing your hymns and yet you're a liar? You steal, you cheat, you commit adultery, you fornication. What do you think that the fact that you, what is it? You mean every time, you know, if I commit fornication, then if I sing ten hymns, that'll somehow outbalance that fornication, right? Is that what it does? Huh? Well, if I, if I lie, cheat, or steal, then if I give three Bible studies, you know, that kind of balances it out. Is that what happens? So what if you do all the Bible studies? So what if you go and be a missionary all over the world? So what if you're still lying, cheating, stealing? If you're still living the same old life? You're just a hypocritical missionary. Testimonies to the Church, Volume 8, page 21. The outpouring of the Spirit in the days of the apostles was the former reign. Glorious was the result. And we saw that, of course, if you read, I mean, you know, thousands were converted. How? In a day. Thousands. In a day. She said, but the latter reign will be more abundant. Let me tell you, I've done evangelism all over this world. I've done evangelism all over this world. And I've had great privileges of doing evangelism and I've um, it's always a joy when people come to Jesus but I cannot imagine preaching uh, one sermon on a particular day and literally thousands are going to be converted in that moment thousands you know if we're faithful you'll have that privilege you'll have the privilege God willing we're alive at that time and we're faithful We'll have the privilege to see it actually happen. 
and be, and be a participant of it. First selected messages, page 122. First selected messages, page 122. Are we hoping to see the whole church revived? Are we hoping to see the whole church revived? That day will never come. That's what she says. Are we hoping to see the whole church revived? That day will never come. You know, it's not that we shouldn't pray for the church to be revived. That's not what she's talking about. It's the false anticipation of assuming that something's going to happen when something will not happen at all. Do you understand? In other words, there are those who are under false delusion. They're in this, this mindset, oh, the whole church is going to be revived. And then we're all together going to march out into the world and we're going to evangelize the world. No, we're not. It's not going to happen. You, you don't have one scripture in the, in the whole Bible that tells you that. She goes on to say, There are persons in the church who are not converted, who will not unite in earnest prevailing prayer. We must enter upon the work individually. We must pray more and talk less. Boy, that last line. Uh, before I get to that, I want to come back to this concept. See, this is the real crux of the statement, or at least in terms of the previous statement that I made. Look, we have to enter the work individually. In other words, friends, listen, it's nothing wrong, and rightly so, we should pray that God blesses people, blesses church. Absolutely. But listen... Stop worrying about Bill and Sally and Jane and Sue. Why don't you start worrying about yourself? Well, Bill, you know, he eats this, he, he, he does this, he does... What that, uh, that's Bill's problem. Why are you making Bill's problem your problem when you don't have the problem? You understand what I mean? You know, why, why is it? You know, if somebody's... Look, if, some, if, I, if I see somebody out there who's, who's uh, hauling a, a wheelbarrow full of, of rocks up a hill, uh, will I sympathize with him? You better believe it. But am I going to make his problem mine? No. <laughs> you, you understand what I'm saying? No, it's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. He's got a problem. I mean, I'll do what I can. But I'm in the end, you understand, I'm not going to... Some, you know, sometimes there's some things you best, well, leave alone. And sometimes some people have certain problems. All right, fair enough. You may not do certain things. You know, I say this, and, and I want you to hear me out before you come to the, you know, a, a conclusion and statement. Listen very carefully. <clears throat> Today we often hear it's us versus them mentality. I don't like that kind of talk. That's not responsible talking. I mean, that's, that's as far as I'm concerned, that's... Very immature, uh, and it's and it's irresponsible. Us versus them. What's that? You know what I mean? Us versus them. You know, it's a conference versus self-supporting work. You know, the ones the good, the others the bad. Of course, depending on which camp you're in, you already know who's the other. You know, who's the bad and who's the good. Right? Sure. If you're in self-supporting work, they're the bad guys. But see, that's, not, that's, a, that's a very serious and I think a dangerous attitude to have. 
It reminds me of what the Jews were like. You know? It's a, it's a terrible attitude. Us versus them. You know, one is good, the other is bad. I always thought, you know, in the original title of the Great Conference, the Great Conference between what? Christ, Christ and, his, and Satan. You know, the real issue today is truth versus error. It had always been truth and error. And frankly, as far as I'm concerned, I don't care who preaches the truth, just as long as they preach the truth. I don't care where I have to meet. I don't care what I have to go. I don't care who I have to listen to. If a little child came up to me of a Presbyterian faith and gave me truth, you think I'm going to reject them? Because, oh, I can't, son. I'd love to do it. Because you see, but you're of the Presbyterian faith. And besides, you're a little child. Now, don't misunderstand me. We as the Seventh-day Adventist people have God's truth. There's no doubt about it. But I think we need to take a good look at our own lives. A serious look at our lives. Individually. Doing all that we can to bring our lives in harmony with the will of God. And in the effort of doing that, then we're able to help the brother who's got the wheelbarrow with the rocks rolling up the hill. She says we need to pray more and talk less. I think if we were to pray as much as we talk, we'd already be in heaven. Too much gossip in the church. Too much gossip. We're killing one another with words. Christian Service, page 228. Those who make no decided effort, but simply wait for the Holy Spirit to compel them to action, will perish in darkness. If, if Are you waiting? You're just going to sit, you know, I'm just going to wait for the Holy Spirit to hit me like a thunderbolt of lightning out of the heaven, and then that's the day I'm going to wake up and get revived. I'm going to march on. For, you'll never be revived. You'll never be revived. She says, we are not to sit still and do nothing in the work of God. In other words, look, God gave you a mind. He gave you, I hope, common sense. Rationally think it through. You've already been given the declaration of what to do. What are you waiting for? If your boss, if you're an employee and your boss told you what to do, the previous day, what has to be done the first thing in the morning, you already know what has to be done. Now, what would your boss think of you if you came in the morning and said, Boy, what do you want me to do again? I know one thing. You're not up for promotion. I can guarantee that. I'm not making you the supervisor. You're so incompetent, you can't even remember what I told you the day before. And frankly, if I find somebody else who's more qualified, guess what? I'm going to fire you. There's no reason for us to wait when God has already told us what to do. 
He's waiting for us. And I will say this, though. If he has to, and you know this, I'm not telling you anything that you don't really know, I think. But listen, if he has to, he'll get the rocks to cry. Look, in other words, don't misunderstand me. Friends, you better read Romans 9 through 11 one more time. Sometimes we get this mindset that God will never pass us by. Oh, no, he, not me. No, no. Like the Jews of old. You know one of the reasons why they rejected Jeremiah's message? Go back and read the book of Jeremiah. You don't want to know why they rejected Jeremiah's message? They kept saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are we. Now, what do they mean? What are they saying? They were saying to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, you can't be telling us the truth. Because the temple of God still stands. There it is. It stands as a monument of God's covenant to us. Your prophecies are not true. And then they had another guy by the name of Hananiah. Remember him? Oh, crafty Hananiah. Who was he? He was a false prophet. Every time Jeremiah preached the truth, what did Hananiah do? He preached the opposite. Because they are under the false delusion. Deceptive. Oh, God will never reject us. God will never turn his back on us. That's why when Jeremiah said, God will make this house like Shiloh, they were so angry, they took him out of the church. See, they were going to kill him. But they were so nice, they didn't want to do it in the church, you see. You know, they didn't want to get the temple bloody. And so what they did was they thought, well, we'll murder him outside the church. This will make it more appropriate, more holier to God, you see. So we'll take him outside the church and we'll murder him. Thank God they didn't. But Jeremiah was telling them what was going to happen to the temple. You all remember what happened in Shiloh. Philistines came and annihilated Shiloh and took the ark. You all remember that story? That's what God was saying to Jeremiah, to the people. And God's trying to help us to see something. Friends, God wants you to be in heaven. God wants you to participate in the final work of God's closing of this gospel. But listen, he, that's what he wants. But he's not going to make you do something that you don't want to do. So if you choose not to do it, God will find someone else to do it. Do you understand? God will find someone. God will have a people ready for the coming of the Lord. Now I pray to God you and I will be a part of that. But that's up to you, isn't it? Ultimately, in the end, the choice is yours. You have to decide. You know, Paul talks about running a race. In the book of Hebrews, you know, he talks about that running that race, right? Sometimes I think in our minds, we feel that we have to finish first. In other words, it's like a competition. But it's not an issue of competition. And it's not an issue of matter of who finishes first. That's not the issue of the gospel. Look, friends. It doesn't matter who crosses the line first. Let's be honest. When we, if we get to heaven, and they got that long line of the saints, somebody's going to be the last one walking in. Isn't that true? So, And listen, I don't know about you, but... If God so willed, I'll be the last. I'll, I'll, be, I'll take up the rear. You understand? I'll be more than happy. More than happy. Amen. 
doesn't matter to me. If you want to be first, God bless you. Roll on in. I'm more than happy to be the last just as long as I'm one of them. That's all that matters to me. It's the issue of, uh, and Paul writes that running, look, it's the issue of who finishes, not who finishes first. Perseverance, determination, having your mind and your eyes fixed on the goal. You've got to keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now tomorrow we're going to continue on. I'm going to talk about some other things. Isaiah 58, something very important I think I want to share with you tomorrow. But other issues as well, I'm praying about it. Because I brought a couple of sermons, but I haven't really even decided which ones. I'm letting the Lord decide from moment to moment. But you pray about it. Listen, Jesus is going to come by God's grace. What He is saying. We do all that we can to get ready for that glorious day. Got to keep your eyes on the Lord, not on one another. Doesn't mean you don't worry about one another. Doesn't mean you don't pray for one another. Doesn't mean you're not concerned about one another. It just means you're not going to be so nosy in the one another's affairs, right? That's right. That's what it means. God is good and greatly to be praised. Isn't that right? Listen to me. I know God's been good to you, but the question simply comes down to this. Have you been good to God? That's the real issue, isn't it? So what do you say this week, this weekend, as we spend time together, we make a covenant with the Lord that, Lord, I'm going to be good to you. Not just for this weekend, but I'm going to start and press forward and reach higher and higher. How many of you, how many of you want to make a commitment tonight to the Lord Jesus? God bless you. The Lord be with you. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege once again that we have to come together to worship, to give you thanks. You've been kind to us, dear Lord, more than we ever deserve. Oh, Lord, I'm so thankful to know that the Bible says you do not reward us according to our sins, but according to your mercies. Thank you, dear Lord. Now bless us and keep us. And may this message, I pray, dear God, move on each heart. And dear Lord, once again, Bless this weekend, we pray. You have said that it is your special time where you will pour out your early and latter rain. And so, Lord, we now claim that promise and great expectation. We expect to receive that blessing. And so we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.